and welcome to The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM. You can catch us online at cfur.ca or on anchor.fm. We're bringing you this show from the traditional unceded territories of the Clay Laitonay First Nation. And on today's show, we talk to PhD student Janine Randall. We speak with Janine about her research on the impacts of climate change and food supplies on tree swallows. Tune in to hear about struggles between setting up experimental versus observational research studies on natural systems. But first up, we've got a track for you from All Vays. This is Archie, Marry Me. We are speaking to Janine Randall. How are you doing, Janine? I'm doing well, thanks, Jeremy. How are you? 
Very well. And of course, we've got our trusty co-host, Kristen Keita. Hello, everyone. How are you today, Kristen? I, I really can't complain, Jeremy. It's sunny outside. And where are yeah. you right now? I'm actually um, down near Likely, BC at a research station that UNBC runs down here. And it is a, a nice place to be when you're quarantining because there's like 15 people that live in this area anyway. So we don't see anybody. Mm -hmm. It's just you and a whole bunch of flumes, eh? That's right. Flumes and the beautiful Quenelle River. So mm -hmm. again, my life is pretty good right now. I can't complain. Nice. I think that'll have to be uh, an upcoming episode. Maybe we'll uh, interview people that are doing work down at QRC, the Quinell River Research so. Center. That'd be cool. Anyways, back to topic. Uh, Jeanine Randall is a PhD student at UMBC, and she is studying climate and food effects on tree swallows, if I'm not mistaken. But um, maybe we'll let Janine explain. Uh, would you mind just giving us a background, Janine, on who you are and how you got to where you are today at UNBC? Yeah, for sure. Um, and that is correct. Climate, food, birds, uh, large, broad topic. Maybe we can get into some of the specifics in a bit. But uh, oh, yeah. I've, been, I've been working on birds for about 12 years now and uh, I started just after uh, just after my undergrad um, I worked for the Ministry of Environment in one of those kind of like part-time student uh, cheap labor but great experience jobs and it that job was focused on birds and then uh, every job that I've gotten since has been focused on birds and eventually that led me to uh, do a master's degree and then a PhD at UMBC. And where did you do your undergrad? I did my undergrad at the University of Victoria. Oh, nice. Yeah. And Lots during your words down there. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. So, is that when you like? Did you start to get involved with research and stuff while you were doing your undergrad? I didn't actually. I wish that I had, and that's one of those things where I always try and advise. Uh, I do a lot of TAing at UMBC, and when um, I try to advise students to get involved in research as soon as possible. Um, but I was actually a competitive rower Whoa. during my undergrad. So I trained uh, 12 times a week and um, like, you know, several practices a day. And so I didn't have a lot of time for other things. And I think in some ways, I kind of shortchanged myself on my undergraduate degree because of that. I mean, like, I don't regret like the, the physical aspect and the sort of mental discipline and all that stuff that's involved in competitive sports is great. But I sometimes tell people I majored in rowing and I minored in <laughs> biology. <laughs> but I'm sure like some of the, you know, like the, the mental aspect that you just touched on is probably in hindsight, super useful for your PhD because it is this just kind of like grinding <laughs> away. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You're like, okay, this kind of sucks right now, but you know, you just got to keep going. Well, and even in some of the early field jobs that I did, like um, my first job, we worked on a lot of different species, but one of the species was uh, white-tailed ptarmigan, and they breed in alpine areas, um, and there's a subspecies that lives on Vancouver Island, and that's what we were, we were not exactly studying, we were just doing occupancy surveys, but this job involved like really arduous hiking, like we would... Uh, get dropped off by a helicopter, not super arduous, 
but on one peak and then kind of hike like traverse to another and so we would have all of our stuff for 10 days and some sometimes like the hiking was unbelievably hard you know like just really dense devil's club super steep slopes and all that and so you know kind of drawing on that background where you're like okay this super hurts but it's fine I'll yeah. be fine <laughs> and so I think like I I used a lot of things it's really hard to get that first job and I used a lot of different aspects of my sort of life experience to convince them that I'd be a good hire and one of those things is my athletic background oh yeah mm. what part of province were you doing that in uh Vancouver Island okay beautiful yeah so lots of devil's club Lots and lots and lots of Devil's Club <laughs> and lots of Salal and like lots of dense brush and actually one of the the other woman on the crew uh, had worked mostly in the interior and she just like the coastal forest she was like this is just ridiculous actually one of the other species we worked on was goshawks and uh, we we're doing nest surveys for goshawks and they. Uh, again super steep like that's where they like to have their nests is just these really steep um that kind of coastal forest where you know you go through the the hemlock sh under under shrub layer and you're just it doesn't matter if it's rained that day or yesterday like you're still just soaking wet because uh because that 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 vegetation just holds so much water but uh i guess um I might have a little bit of a screw loose because I just got really hooked on this kind of work through that job. It was like, this is my calling. Um, yeah. This is what I want to do. And like I said, that job wasn't super scientific, but um, from there kind of later jobs that I got, I met people that had advanced degrees and I was, I really got interested in like not just being the person that collected the data, but also learn like becoming the person that asked the questions and learning how to design a study to answer a certain question and to to collect data that was going to be meaningful mm -hmm. and um so were you always interested in birds then is that what you were working on during your undergraduate degree or was it this kind of work that got you into the bird world in the first place um well ubeck actually has a very marine focused program not surprisingly um and actually most of what i did like my undergrad wasn't your wasn't particularly focused like i actually started in general arts um and then i just i, I thought i wanted to be a physiotherapist <laughs> so I, I ended up starting to take science courses um and then I, I think it was probably about my third year i realized that i hadn't taken like human anatomy human physiology or anything in health science and it's sort of, but I'd taken like invertebrate zoology and marine invertebrates and animal behavior and ecology and ichthyology and all of these other courses. Um, and I realized that I probably actually did not want to be a physiotherapist. <laughs> um, so no, I didn't really focus on birds in my undergrad. It was, I probably, if anything, it would be marine invertebrates. Um, like UVic has a great saltwater uh, system, so you you can you can really like they really have a lot of species, and and a lot of the labs focus on uh, focus on that. Like I remember doing one where you have an octopus, and you like put different colors of things under the octopus, and then when the octopus swims over it, like it automatically changes color. Oh, Whoa. cool! 
yeah, right? And it's like observations like that that are just so fascinating. I think, like even now, like I said, I've been working on birds for 12 years, but I've also, I've also worked on amphibians a little bit. Um, very little mammal. I've, I've worked on mammals very little. Like I think I did one day on Vancouver Island marmots. Um, it's on my resume. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but I, I, it's mostly that that's where the research opportunities have been. And birds really are a great model organism. They, you can have a very large sample size. You can interact directly with your study species without having, you know, it's way different than like working on bears or something like that where you have to have like a crew and this big and drugs and this big thing. Like birds are really like, they really lend themselves to the kind of science I like, which is a little bit like, here's your truck keys, like here's your banding kit, go out and collect some data. And like, you know, we use very DIY type materials to do our research. And um, I kind of, I enjoy that aspect where you're, you're always trying to kind of figure out, and I'm sure, I'm sure lots of other fields do that as well, but it's just, this is sort of the realm that I've gotten into. But if anybody ever wants to hire me to work on lizards or butterflies <laughs> or anything else, like, uh, like if those opportunities do come up in the future, I, I'm not, I don't consider myself just a bird biologist. Like I think I have an interest in systems and it's about the question, not necessarily about the study species that being said you know do i have bird paraphernalia in my house <laughs> yep <laughs> and i think you had mentioned that you grew up uh in prince rupert so when you were a kid was that like were you kind of a i don't like i know there's some kids that are like real into computers and other kids that are real into like going out in the creeks and playing in the creeks so do you think that had any impact on you oh i definitely do um yeah i actually grew up outside prince rupert's um and an island called Porcher Island. Um, so there's only seven people in my community, and I oh. was ho- I was homeschooled. Sorry, Jeremy's face is really funny on Zoom here, <laughs> socially distanced interview. I always say I'm from a small town, but that is a small town. Yes. Oh, I've I've never lost the small town debate ever. <laughs> like like I've had this with many people where you know you're like out or whatever. People are like, oh, I'm from a really small town. And I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of that. Yeah. It was basically like my family was four people. Um, so when we moved there, we more than doubled the population. <laughs> um, but as a result, I was homeschooled and my mom's approach to that was um like I did some formal correspondence schooling and stuff but there was a couple of years that I just we sort of would decide between the two of us like I don't really feel like doing this this year maybe I'll just do math or whatever and not do anything else um but I'll keep a journal you know to to work on my writing and I have to do it in cursive to practice that or things like that but one of the things that she always did was hmm, excuse me was get field guides. So we'd have like a plant guide and a bird guide and, um, you know, an atlas and that kind of thing. And, and I did spend a lot of time in creeks and watching birds. And, you know, I can remember the sandhill cranes showing up in the spring every year, right? And cool. like watch, watching them dance. Cause we had a, mm. like Humpback Bay is basically a, well, it's not basically, but it has a, a salmon spawning creek. So it's an it's an estuary, um, and there's a humpback salmon run, which is what it's named after. It's not named after whales, 
Um, and my house is a float house that was sort of on the edge of the estuary. And then like our view was this, this big, like flat salt marsh essentially. So great for birds and they're distant enough from us that like they would just show up and we could watch them from our front porch, but, but we would watch, be watching them behave really normally. Um, so I think like I learned a lot from those sorts of observations. And again, like to get my first job, I traded heavily on that upbringing. I was like, yeah, I'll be fine. Send me out in the bush. I've got this. Um, yeah. And I think it's part of why I liked it so much is because um, it was kind of like getting back to my roots a little bit. Very cool. So it almost sounds like uh, those in the education department that are trying to craft some experiential learning programs <laughs> could uh, get in contact yeah. with you for some tips, potentially. Yeah, just send the kids out to an island for a couple of years and you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. Well, it's great to get some of your background, Janine. And um, yeah, we're uh, we're coming up to our first break here. So uh, afterwards, I'd love to hear about uh, what your research project actually entails here at UMBC. So get a little more focused here, hey? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, so we've got a track coming up here, and uh, we'll be back with Janine Randall in a moment.
That was the Rural Alberta Advantage with the song On the Rocks. You're listening to CFUR 88.7 FM and online at cfer.ca. Welcome back to The Abstract. Um, today on our show, we are talking to Janine Randall, who is um, talking about birds. So we did talk a bit about your background, but we want, we're hoping now to just kind of dive into the research that you're doing, both in your PhD and if you want to talk about your master's at all. That'd be cool too. Can you give us a brief, you know, kind of a brief overview and then we'll dive into some of the nitty gritty details of your PhD work? Yeah, sounds good. Um, so for my PhD, I'm studying tree swallows, which are a species of migratory songbird that eats uh, exclusively flying insects. Actually, it's not exclusive. Sorry. They eat flying insects during the breeding season. They eat a bunch of, of weird things during the winter because, uh, Flying insects are hard to come by during the winter. Um, but what I'm looking at is how um, weather and large, on a larger scale climate is affecting the food that's available to them during the breeding season and their kind of their breeding outcomes and uh, some of their behavioral strategies for dealing with uh, challenging conditions. And is most of that research taking place up here in northern BC? It is, yeah. I actually have two uh, two research sites that are west of Prince George. Uh, one of them's on a managed wetland um, out in Beaverly. Um, so that means it's uh, what it actually is is um, kind of a water treatment area. It's um, downstream sewage treatment. That's like it's pretty clean. It's the occasional stinky day, but uh, it's very very productive. Obviously, there's a lot of insects and a lot of different uh, wildlife that use that area. And we have, we have nest boxes because tree swallows are um, a type of bird that nests, they're uh, nest in secondary cavities. So that means they don't excavate their own nest cavities. They'll like naturally they'll reuse kind of something that was excavated by a woodpecker. Um, but the advantage of this from a research standpoint is that they'll use nest boxes that we make and put up um, they all nest in them, so then you don't have to spend a bunch of time trying to find their nest. You just get to go collect data. Um, and then my other site is on um, some privately owned hay fields, and those are just a little bit further west of town, out uh, towards uh, McBride Timber Road. And so, with these nest boxes, are they something that have been there for like years or decades, or like do you have like quite a historical record? Yeah, um, so they've been there since um, early on in my advisor's uh, career at UMBC. I'm trying to think when he got hired, but they've been up since the early uh, they've been up since the early 2000s. And we also have access to data that's collected in Saskatchewan. So I potentially have, and that that data set is I think uh, about 25 years long. Oh wow. So I potentially have access to those data as well. Um, so I'm sort of trying to combine that long-term data with some sort of current experiments to get, um, because there's different questions you can ask on different timescales. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what exactly is the data that you're collecting then? Is it how many 
tree swallows there are in a given nest box in a given year or it sounds like you're collecting some climate data as well what, what what's the data sets that are that you're working with yeah um so i have weather stations i have uh hobo weather stations um at both of my sites so i do have um wind speed and direction uh rainfall data and temperature data for those uh, we don't have those unfortunately for the whole historical record so I might end up um, kind of looking at the differences between if I can find like a consistent relationship between other available weather data and those stations. Mm -hmm. um, I might end up being able to incorporate um, sort of that publicly available weather data as well uh, for, for when I don't have those that station data. Feel free to talk to my research group because we've got <laughs> data going back to 2006 in the local area. Yes, yes, definitely. Mate, I've been uh, I've been kind of thinking I need to make friends with the weather people. <laughs> uh, also, partially just because it's different uh, different types of data than I'm used to looking at with birds. So even just how what the best ways to analyze it are and what the best tools are. Because I do admit sometimes when I read climate modeling papers, like there's a fair amount of like flipping the paper over a couple of times to see if it'll make more sense upside down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for the, the, that's sort of the abiotic data, for the biotic data, we have uh, insect sample traps out as well. So we have a couple of different types. Um, one are these, these uh, they're called passive aerial toe nets. And they're definitely were handmade, but there's a sort of a mesh screen on a hoop and then that uh, rotates on a metal pole um, with the winds and has a little jar with alcohol so when the insects go in they work their way down the tow net and they fall into the jar of alcohol and we change that every two days and uh, I have three of those at one site and four at the other and they go up in the same place every year to kind of to uh, for that to be consistent um, and then as far as the birds go, uh, we collect a lot of data with them. Um, so the main thing, we start monitoring the nest boxes in May. Uh, the birds are back, but they don't start breeding. They like hang out around the river and stuff. So uh, it's, it's pretty difficult to study them until they kind of show up on the breeding site. Um, but we'll, we'll monitor the nest boxes so that you can, um, you can detect when they start putting material in the boxes and uh, and then we try and catch it when they lay their first eggs. So that gets recorded. We weigh the eggs. Um, we actually take pictures of, of them using a thing called an ovalux. So you shine a light through the egg and, uh, and then take a picture with a digital camera and that'll give you a measurement of the yolk size. So that's a measure of, of the investment Whoa. that the female put into the eggs. Do you measure, or are you like trying to also figure out like, I guess with the collecting the insects and ethanol, you kind of know what's in and about that area. Do you know like what they actually eat or do you even care about that? <laughs> I'm actually working on a side project. Although if, it may, if I can make it work, it will definitely be a chapter. Um, but the diet has been described, uh, but really at like kind of, a really high level so like they eat a lot of dipterans well which dipterans yeah and, like it's it's mostly been described at the the order level rather than uh genus or species so i'm trying to use um 
molecular techniques, I collected a bunch of fecal samples from the nestlings. Um, and so I'm trying to extract DNA out of, out of those samples. And then if I can, that I'm kind of stuck on that part because, um, bird feces are very inhospitable environment. Uh, mm. for, for DNA, they've got a lot of different bacteria, like contaminants and, and stuff that, uh, my understanding kind of binds to the DNA. Um, and also it's like a really acidic environment, right? Because they like, like bird feces are really high in uric acid. Um, oh, right, so, right. so people have definitely successfully done this, but, um, I haven't managed to make it work yet with, I've just been using kind of commercially available kits and I might have to try once we're, once we're all good to go back and work with the university intensively. Um, I'm going to have to troubleshoot that a little bit, but the goal of that is to describe the diet more completely. Cool. Um, yeah, it'd be really neat to know because there is kind of a gap between like, okay, how meaningful are the insects that I'm catching in my insect traps? Is that really what they're eating? Um, well, and I'd love to know, like, I'd love to be able to tell people like how frequently mosquitoes occur in their diet for example right that yeah, would just no make kidding. that would excite everybody if i'm like <laughs> they eat a metric ton of mosquitoes that would be great news i know right <laughs> uh, how to make people care about your research yeah that's yeah right. yeah everybody will have a tree swallow box in their backyard <laughs> post haste <laughs> yeah i have bat boxes at my house for that very purpose oh, nice. nice yeah are they occupied i don't think they've yeah. been occupied <laughs> i know a lot of I know a lot of people with bat boxes and I don't know a lot of people with bats in their bat boxes. I don't know mm -hmm. what the trick, you'll have to ask uh, Aaron Fairwald what the trick is to that. Yes, our resident Ooh, we'll get her on the podcast. Person. Yeah, that would be awesome. We'll have to, we'll have to add that in the uh, tweet when we uh, push this episode out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and one question I do have about the whole insect data collection. Well, I guess, so generally speaking, have you, are you at the stage where you've observed some trends in the long-term data set? And then also, um, are there any, I, like, I keep hearing that insects globally are in decline. Like, yeah. we're only just discovering this. So has that been observed in the insect data set? Um, I have not, to be honest, um, I have not, I have a lot of collected data, but um, I haven't really gotten to the stage where I've um, managed to process those samples very completely yet. Um, observationally, you definitely get a lot fewer samples on lousy days, which makes sense, right? And by lousy, I mean cold, really windy wet because yeah. um, there's just a lot less activity um, but I don't really have a lot of trends I don't have a lot of results to report at the moment um, I did do a couple of experiments that I've started to look at so um, like one of the we do like our data collection is pretty intensive like what I just told you about measuring the eggs like that's definitely the tip of the iceberg like we weigh yeah. the nestlings every two days to and calculate growth rates. We catch the adults. We uh, we collect feathers to look at at coloration. Um, and some of that stuff is not necessarily going to be part of my thesis. It's part of that long term data things that we do every year. But certainly, like the, the nestling growth rates, um, 
and we also put video cameras in the nest boxes to look at the rate. Cool. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, yeah, it's really neat. It's neat data. Um, so that you can get feeding rates from that. Oh, um, cool. And you can actually mark the heads of the chicks with net, with um, whiteout, so that you so we have like a set pattern of the chicks are all individually identified, hmm. um, and then you can say like okay like you know green right uh, got fed twice as often as blue left, and you can try to start teasing apart like okay what is it about green right that uh, that made the parents like what made green right the favorite. Hmm. Um, so I have a lot of data like that, but which is wonderful. Um, but it's it's like I have hours and hours and hours and <laughs> of hours processing. of video yeah. to watch. Yeah, I have to say, um, I can attest to the amount of field work that you guys seem to be doing because I think Jinan, you your group um, are the people that I see the most going <laughs> in and out of the loading bay doors in the lab building when uh, campus is bustling. So yeah. yeah, it seems like you guys are collecting a ton of data. Yeah, in a normal, like, it's it's hard to say what this year is going to look like, but in a normal year, we're out every day uh, from kind of the beginning of May through till the end of July and June. Um, like, I had some days last June where I was getting to campus kind of between 6 and 7 and getting home from campus, like, well after midnight. Boof! <laughs> and it's just wow. because it's and unfortunately tree swallows are a species that breed really synchronously so they all lay eggs within like a short period of time and then everything hatches within a short period of time and so it's it's just it's very intensive in june like w whenever we hire field assistants we always try and be like okay look like june is rough We'll, we'll take some days off in July. Like, I, I don't take days off, but, like, I get the field assistant <laughs> days off so they don't uh, don't start um, losing it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just so time-sensitive because, like, the, the, for you to calculate those growth rates, stuff has to be measured on a specific day. Like, you have to go they – get, they get weighed two days after they hatch, and to know that they hatched, you have to check them the day that they hatched. Um, two days after they hatched, four days, six days, right? So you, you can't just be like, oh, I don't feel like going out today. I'll measure them on day seven. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think we're going to take our next break here. Um, we're talking to Janine Randall, and hopefully in the next segment we get some interesting, uh, maybe some stories about your field work that <laughs> are a little bit light on the light side of things. And so with, oh. Well, I was just going to say, I'd personally love to hear about uh, the experience of checking on these eggs while yeah. presumably there's a mother bird uh, <laughs> around coming to check on them. Luckily, they're <laughs> little, but yes, I, I've got stories. <laughs> Great. Wants no flowers bloom. He's the one I see right through. She's the absent of my lips. Splinter in my fingertips. 
from the Civil Wars, and this is The Abstract on CFUR 88.7 FM. Catch us online at cfur.ca. For my master's, I looked at um, blue-green eggshell color in bluebirds and whether or not it was a an advertisement of female quality and therefore kind of like a sexually selected trace. Huh. And, and I kept myself very narrowly to questions that related to that trait. And so it hung, like my master's was just really, um, I shouldn't say straightforward because it certainly wasn't, but my questions were always very well defined. And what I found with my PhD, I deliberately wanted to do something a little bit broader, but I think I'm still, I'm still kind of struggling with, um, with how to boil down that sort of broad context of the impacts of environmental change on birds and tree swallows in particular to something that's sort of a manageable series of questions. And one of the issues with it is, is that, um, so my background and, and what, what my lab does, like my advisors, Dr. Russ Dawson, um he does experimental work so he like his kind of both of our bias is that you should be able to manipulate something to isolate it and figure out what the um what the what the effect is but you can't manipulate like it's really difficult to manipulate environmental conditions right like you yeah. just sort of have to work with what you get um and so in that context i've done I've done some experiments where I, I look at, like I'm going to do broad scale associations between temperature and the food availability and things like the yolk volume, right? So I have the two different sites. One of them I think has a higher insect abundance than the other. Um, and I'd, I'd like to look at, at whether or not the, the conditions, the, the three days previous to when the eggs were laid, like whether or not that affects the yolk volume, right? And then what the sort of downstream consequences are for the young. But that's not really an, ex an experiment. So I'm still going to do that stuff, and I still have those sorts of questions. I have tons of those questions, like more questions like that than fit in a PhD. Yeah. Um, and then I also have a series of, of experiments. So I wouldn't mind talking a little bit about those. Um, 
if well, you're interested. Uh, this kind of does draw <laughs> yeah. me into a question. Um, I, I mean, is part of your nervousness doing a more observational-based study versus an experimental-based study? Is is the nervousness about that because you might end up doing like a correlation is not equal causation sort of scenario? Well, yeah, because you get so... Like, like, let's say, you know, I'm doing comparisons between the two sites and one site has more insects than the other. And I say, okay, well, the birds at this, this site are doing better. Well, there's also the issue of which birds settled at that site, right? So if all the better, if all of the, the higher quality individuals are at that better site, then is it the, is it the environment? Or is it the individual? So you you have to find ways of of breaking of breaking those associations so that you can look at things separately. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, the like correlational stuff is valuable. Um, I think like my ultimate goal with this this work is I want to understand what traits make birds more vulnerable to climate effects. And what traits provide like built-in resilience? Hmm. One of the things I'm really interested in looking at, but I still haven't totally figured out a good way of doing, is it's like this is one of my pet theories, but is that the level of cooperation between the two parents? Um, if you have a species where, uh, like normally, males contribute somewhat less to raising the offspring in birds, um, but they do contribute quite a bit, like more than in mammals, and they're an important part of of parental care. Um, but one of like my sort of questions that I have in my in my head is if you have a species where the males can adjust and they'll they'll up like when conditions get tough, they'll up their investments is that species more resilient to environmental change? Because you could predict the opposite, which is when conditions get tough, the males get going, right? And don't, and don't, and contribute less because they're, they're trading off their own kind of self-interest, right? And that investing more in those bad conditions might actually uh, carry a survival cost. Um, so I'm looking at some experiments where you can kind of create a challenge and then and then basically see what happens, see how uh, the behavior of the two sexes changes. Very cool. So <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so I mean, if because I'm I'm strictly an abiotic background mm. person so i mean i in in the projects that i'm used to working on it's that you know there's there's so many processes that could possibly be affecting your system and mm-hmm. as long as you're collecting data on enough variables related to those processes then you can kind of attribute the the cause of different yeah um, changes in your data set um so i mean i guess i guess what i'm trying to um, digest here is that um, when you're looking at um, a, a natural or a, a biotic system, mm-hmm. um, are you kind of saying that there, there's since there's like the behavioral aspect to 
birds? Um, is it possible that there's some um, variables that you can't necessarily account for with the way you're collecting your data right now? Like if, if you're having a hard year, you don't know necessarily if the males are starting to behave differently or is that kind of the, the, the challenge that, that you're facing right now? Yeah, sort of. So like you have, when you're studying a living organism, that organism is making decisions, right? And that putting air quotes that no one can hear on the radio around that word. But um, like these aren't necessarily conscious choices that are thought out and reasoned, but they're evolutionarily based strategies um, that have evolved for a reason, right? But it can be difficult to predict those because you could equal, so the, the, when things get difficult, males might contribute more because if they don't, they're, all their offspring will die and they'll lose their reproductive fitness. But at the same time, it's equally plausible that males will contribute less to protect their own survival, right? So if you want to test that, you have to, you have to kind of separate, um, you have to try to separate individual quality from the conditions they're experiencing. So uh, maybe it'll make more sense. I'll tell you about the experiment I did last year. Um, I actually extended the brood rearing period for birds by switching offspring between nests. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, baby <laughs> snatching. <laughs> um, so we we took nestlings on. Don't have my my protocol in front of me, but uh, on day fourteen, and we switched them with nestlings. Uh, so I, I'll preface this: tree swallows uh, usually take between eighteen and twenty days to leave the nest. So from hatching out of an egg to flying away as a bird, you've got a, between eighteen and twenty days. Wow. And we measure them between, uh, like, we, we start monitoring them when they hatch, and then uh, we measure them up till day 16, and then we don't uh, disturb the nest after that to avoid uh, the nestlings leaving the nest before they're ready. Um, so for this experiment, we took, we matched nests um, where they had that time gap. So I would take day 14 nestlings and switch them with another nest that had day 9 nestlings. So you're getting a five-day change. So you, right. you functionally lengthened that incubate that breed brood rearing period by five days. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and so then I took what I did was I measured the feeding rate before I did that switch, and then I measured it after. Um, so. And you get the, the male feeding rate and the female feeding rate. And so I haven't had a chance to analyze those data yet. But um, what I want to look at is whether or not, like, both, like, there's several things that could happen. Maybe both parents could maintain the same level of care. Maybe the female maintained that level of care, but the male decreased. Uh, or, you know, vice versa, right? And those different outcomes will mean different things. Mm while including those background measurements of the temperature, the weather, the food availability, yeah. Right? right? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And so, so the, the parents will 
adopt these new swapped yep. children, eh? Oh, that's yeah, so nice. I, I was so nervous about that. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously you try it and we would, I, I would go uh, away at a, at a good distance so that it wasn't disturbing them. And then you watch with binoculars and it's like, okay, like what are they going to do, right? Because the yeah. things just totally changed. But I think the thing to remember is that like these birds while they're breeding just have hormones pumping, right? Like, um, right. So, so they're, they're like, okay, well, like, I don't know what goes through their brains. Um, but there's nestlings in the nest. We're going to feed them. Um, so it was, it was successful and, uh, we switched them after like, um, so tree swallows have altricial young. They don't thermoregulate on their own until, until around day eight. Um, and because that behavior is so specific to that early portion of the brood rearing, that's why we didn't switch them until after they were able to thermoregulate. Oh, okay. So we didn't want to switch like individuals that were thermoregulating with ones that weren't and then have the female not like potentially not be able to go back in yeah, the cycle. Right. So there's things like that to account for. Um, and we also like, if it's a nest with five, we switch them with a nest with five. Like you're not, you don't want to change, change stuff too much. Yeah. And, um, and just maybe so that our listeners are aware, uh, presumably um, this kind of work, egg swapping uh, or, or sorry, baby swapping <laughs> requires some ethics approval to do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah, something I'm not not envious of. That's <laughs> tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and like these things sound, um, you know, these things sound extreme. But we also like, like I said, I've been doing this for for twelve years, and you, you keep the times really short. And there's there's all kinds of ways that you can minimize the stress on the animals. Yeah, when I worked um, at USGS, we would <laughs> we'd have to take a fish tissue sample. And it was like part of the written protocol that after you took the sample, you had to spray Neosporin on the wound before you put it back. So people are very careful about their animal welfare. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like that's one of the reasons that lots of people work on tree swallows actually is because they're very, um, they're very resilient to being disturbed. Um, and they're like, it's funny when you go in to, to check their nest box or whatever, like they'll dive bomb you. Um, they do perceive you as a predator and I always I so we, we try and keep that stuff really short right so like if you're in measuring nestlings like I can measure a nest of of six chicks in under five minutes right like they're out of the nest box measured back in you walk away and I always feel like the bird must be like yeah kill that predator away <laughs> you know right. all and 17 grams of them <laughs> yeah so I assume that you've had some other funny stories coming through birds dive bombing at you do, do you have any notable occasions where maybe it wasn't exactly a five minute survey because of the dive bombing or something like that well actually one of the things i thought of when you mentioned that before the break was uh during my masters um i had a big long series of nest boxes because bluebirds also nest in nest boxes and there was there was one that was uh tall enough that i can't I couldn't see into it so you just had to like reach your hand in Ooh. and and feel like whether there was eggs or whatever was going on and uh so one time i was checking this nest box and i reached in and i put my hand on a mouse 
<laughs> so the mat like i pulled my hand out so fast that the mouse went like flinging across the field no mouses were harmed it ran away uh, uh, but it scared the the bejesus out of me oh man <laughs> oh my and, do you have and, any issues with like wildlife going after your nest boxes yeah yeah uh mice do actually uh they eat both eggs and nestlings uh and so do squirrels um and uh so do bears so bears occasionally take out nest boxes um it's not a huge problem at the prince george sites um we have it a little bit at at the wetland site and there's definitely an area where like you're checking nest boxes in the evening and you're going yo yo bear hey bear yeah um uh i did run into a, a moose in that area um last year not so much of a threat to the nest box but she had a newly newly born calf and i uh i i hightailed it out of there oh yeah <laughs> yeah really yeah more of a threat to you. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. um but yeah stuff does we do definitely lose some nests to to predation for sure and um even like magpies are so smart sometimes they can they'll they'll learn to like reach in and grab the chicks out of the oh. nest boxes. Hmm. It's a much lower predation rate than uh, than open cup nesters have, but uh, but there's still stuff that that does get them. Hmm. Well, we're 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 almost out of time, but I, I have to ask because I I also work in a wetland, and um and it it just kind of for me it's led to all these cool experiences of seeing a lot of unique species. Um, and so I'm wondering, have you? Had any kind of cool wetland experiences? Seen many different uh, birds out there, or much wildlife? Yeah, there's lots of stuff out there. The wet I do really like the wetland site. Both sites, you see bears and deer and all that stuff. But the funny, the first thing that popped into my head when you said that was last year I was checking nest boxes in the evening by myself, and uh, I heard, I I saw and heard a pair of muskrats. Uh, mating oh <laughs> and man are they noisy <laughs> <laughs> so it's those little moments that really make field work uh, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah fun those and wholesome nature moments wholesome. i mean who's seen muskrats doing it right nope yeah, Can't say I have. yeah nor have i not yeah. yet in my experience in wetlands yeah but it might happen <laughs> <laughs> who knows <laughs> muskrat muskrat love <laughs> Great. Well, uh, I think probably on that note, maybe uh, <laughs> we'll uh, call that an interview. So thank you so much, Janine. Uh, yeah, this thanks, was Janine. Really interesting. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to hearing what comes out of some of your research here. And uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on once uh, you've got some exciting results to uh, throw our way. I'd love to chat with you again. Well, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you both for having me on the show.